Welcome to the Scale Up Wallet podcast, where we bring the best tech leaders in the world to help you scale from 2 million to 100 million ARR. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Paul Powers, the CEO of FISNA. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So let, let's get to know a little bit more about yourself. How did you end uh, starting up uh, FISNA? So um, I've been a bit of a serial entrepreneur my whole life, had a bunch of different companies, and I wanted to find, and uh, I really wanted to do something that I thought would be uh, empowering, more than an app, more than a widget or something, and it would be uh, able to con contribute not only to society as a, as, a, as a company, but also to other companies with some kind of new technology. Um, my background, uh, it's, it's a long story of a you know, long you know, childhood story of the, how I kind of got here, but I uh, went to Germany, went to law school, did IP law. That's a, it's a long story, wow. uh, but all uh, for the point of business. And um, when I was doing my thesis at law school in Heidelberg, Germany, um, my focus was on intellectual property. And what I learned about was that, you know, no matter what area uh, of, you know, intellectual property protection you're in, the only one uh, you can typically find any kind of violations. But as soon as it comes down to something three dimensional, you know, you, we, the software goes away, right? So you could easily find tax plagiarism, you know, copies of logos, music, et cetera, throughout rhythms. But as soon as it's three dimensional, it becomes problematic. Uh, looked into why that was and found out that it's because 3D models, you know, we live in a 3D world, but code is in 2D, so it struggles to understand that. And there's all these different um, uh, file types and languages for 3D, and that was complicating it and making it very difficult to search between things, understand what the 3D models were, which meant that you couldn't really apply true machine learning to 3D, uh, all these problems. And um, and that, that was fascinating to me. So I started FISNA, uh, to combat that, and FISNA is short for physical DNA, and what we do is we take uh, 3D models of any format, we normalize that down into something that's, it's not literally DNA, obviously, but it's a code that's um, internationally protected IP um, that allows us to actually normalize all of that. It took years to build that, but it's, uh, it's a very complicated uh, technology, but it allows us to normalize 3D data from any source and then to apply machine learning to that so that um, we can actually make predictions in the design phase about how this product's going to perform. You can find something based off of a component of it. Uh, right now what we're working on is um, uh, advancing 2D to 3D search, meaning that you take a picture of, you know, if you're taking a picture of a piece of furniture, for example, maybe you take a picture of uh, the leg of a, of a chair, but only the bottom half of the leg and from a really weird angle, but we can still know that that represents the leg, which represents the table, which we're able to find all that and how things relate to each other. So we've already had some pretty successful tests with that. So that's, um, we mostly work in the, uh, in the enterprise space. So a lot of engineers use it. Um, we are, there's some mil military contracts and stuff like that that we're working on right now. And um, so basically anything that involves three-dimensional data and making that usable by software, that's kind of where we, Got it. And in terms of the growth stage where you are in, so what rounds did you raise? Uh, what is the ad count nowadays? So give us a little bit some context for the audience, please. Sure, sure. So we're in a, a period of massive growth. We, you know, we, we just finished our Series A round in July. Awesome. Uh, thank you. And so that really was the first time we were able to uh, 
really scale appropriately. In the past, it was always on a shoestring. I mean, we've <laughs> we raised a little bit of seed money, but nothing compared to what we really needed. And uh, it was a lot of uh, blood, uh, blood, sweat, and tears, essentially, uh, <laughs> to get to get there. Uh, not a lot of blood, but uh, <laughs> but, but, but a lot of sweat hopefully. and tears. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. Right. Uh, we did have to have blood taken for the key insurance. Yeah. key person insurance that I had to do. So there is blood belt. Um, <laughs> but other than that, not really. Uh, so it was, um, you know, once we raised Series A, we were able to scale up accordingly, uh, according to our needs. And uh, we've got about 25 people right now uh, on our way up to 30. Um, and I, that number could increase dramatically, but we want to make sure that we're, you know, seeing returns in certain areas. There, there's several different project areas we're working on at the same time. They're all symbiotic and help each other. And they're, you know, they're not three independent random things, but one could certain one of those three or more, or maybe two of those three might outweigh another one, meaning we need to scale in a different direction. And right now we're still figuring out which direction we need to push the most resources into. So this is a very good point, the direction point. Uh, yeah. Ones who are listening to the show very often always know that we go through three main topics during the discussion of your scaling up journey. First one is your leadership team and how your role evolves as well. Number two is focus. Uh, that's where I think that's a very good uh, deep down on this topic would be very interesting. And mm. number three, it's all about how do we inspire execution and how do we fix the system uh, instead of working ourselves uh, as the system. <laughs> right. Getting like the, the blood, uh, the blood tear and uh, <laughs> sweat, yeah. Sweat the part of it. And, right. And um, in, in terms of the team, I, I imagine that uh, 13 thresholds, you start to feel that there are functions in the business and you need to have some leaders. They might not be yet VPs, they might be ads or even in some case managers that were promoted to ads because of their good job in, in the previous stages. But um, how is it evolving uh, from being, are you by the way a solo founder or uh, do you also have another founders in the business? Uh, no, actually, um, I'm a co-founder. Um, our CTO is my co-founder, but unfortunately, um, he uh, ended up passing away. So oh, I'm very sorry to hear. That. Yeah, that's that's by far the hardest thing to go through is when your co-founder and a good friend of yours that you work with every day, it was sudden. We weren't expecting it, so that's the hardest thing. It's getting yeah, past that. We are always learning. It is the first time. <laughs> in the show ever that something uh, happened to me. So sorry for, for the question. And uh, Oh, you're fine. No, 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 you're fine. This was uh, not that long ago, unfortunately. So. Got it. And uh, so uh, in terms of what is the evolution of um, kind of founding team to the leadership team? So how do you structure the team nowadays? Might, might be an easier question to, to move forward. No, sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think it's important when you're starting the company, obviously everyone's got kind of a loose rule, it's all hands on deck and whatnot. Um, we did start with probably a little bit more structure just because you know, my co-founder and I had started several companies in the past and we kind of, you know, we'd learned lessons about where to structure things and where not to structure things too much. So there was some structure there, but um, it, it certainly wasn't to the level that we're at today, and today certainly isn't the level we'll be at in the year, and you know, it's, it's the regular evolution. Um, it, what's important when you go through scaling is kind of finding the right, um, the right balance, I kind of hate the word balance, but I think it's the best word here, uh, 
right. between not having so much bureaucracy and so many processes that you become like a government agency where nothing ever gets done and you're just <laughs> going through paperwork all day and that's your job now and you feel like I did something because I filled out a form. Um, you don't want to get to that point, but you also don't want to be the wild west where anything goes and there's no con uh, structure, no oversight, no metrics in place to know what's going on, right? So it's it's very difficult to find that that balance because um, and that the right balance is also a moving target, right? When you're starting up the company, why would you go chasing tons and tons of metrics when you don't even have your team assembled? You don't even have the pro I mean, the project has even started or whatever, you know? I mean, right. th there's certain times when it makes no sense to have metrics, right? But, uh, or certain metrics. As you go on during the company evolution, you have to add metrics and the weight of importance of certain metrics changes. Um, but there are some core ones that never really go away. You know, product market fit is something that you think about from the beginning to the end of your company, ideally, right? You should always be thinking about, <laughs> about that. Right. Um, adaptability is a big thing. And I think that that's, a, uh, it's, that's the most, if we weren't adaptable, we would have failed many times, right? Because, okay. um, and I know that there's a lot of people talk about failure in different ways and some people have different views on it. And, uh, but I would just say that, you know, the whole um, idiom of a uh, fail early, fail often, there's some truth to that, but you don't need to completely fail. You know, your company doesn't have to crash and burn if you learn your lessons very, very quickly and adapt to them. So as far as like how we've kind of built out the team, um, a lot of it was through trial and error. You know, we, we had a few people on a, on one team and then other people on another team and realized it made no sense to have those teams split. So we merged them. Then we had two people, you know, two groups working on the same thing and realized they weren't really the same thing and we split them. Right. So it, it's a, it's a, it's an ever evolving process, you know, but um, right now the way that it's structured is we have several tech teams, right? So each, so they're individual groups they work on different aspects of the technology and different responsibilities. Uh, the main thing is there's accountability for something. If something goes wrong, when you get past a, a, you know, a dozen people or so, it's really easy for everyone to start pointing fingers and saying, oh, it wasn't my responsibility. I thought it was that person. And, you, know, you have to make sure it's extremely clear who's doing what, who's responsible for what. Um, there has to be some degree of accountability. And you do need to have levels of management, but you also don't need people who are just full-time at 30 people or less. You don't need to have full-time right. just overseers, right? You need, they need to be able to contribute um, and they need to be on the front lines too so they can make it, uh, adaptations. But the style that, we, that I like to use and I think that makes us successful is um, getting really good people who you really, really trust in certain roles and and trusting that they're going to make the right decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. That doesn't mean that you're letting them run away with the company in any direction, but give them some degree of autonomy, a set degree of autonomy, so that if something happens, they can just act And versus coming to you and you don't know what's really happening, you're not really in the front line. And what I see too many leaders do is they don't listen to the team leaders. It goes on, the problem goes on for six months and then finally they see it for themselves and they say, oh, we should change. Well, you could have changed six months ago if you just listened. Right. <laughs> right. Sometimes people want to change things and they don't see the broader vision, but that's the way to get past that is to share the, the broad vision often and frequently. And that's something I'm striving to do. That's a very, that's a really a, a very good um, uh, topic or a very good tip because usually uh, the ones who are close to, to the customer, close to the technology, close to any business issues should be better than the CEO and should know more about the the, the issue itself. So it's, it is much easier for them to make a decision than to be the CEO to make a decision, not to talk about 
decision fatigue and decision overwhelming, being overwhelmed with decisions that you should not be involved with and not having the time to really uh, have the time to think about what are the key strategic decisions that might affect the business in, in the mid and long term. It also it matters that people know what uh, the effect that they're having on the company. You know, I, what I try to do, and I'm not saying that I'm perfect at this. I'm not. I'm something. It's an active <laughs> process of me improving. But you know, I try to get, uh, especially recently, I've been trying harder and harder to make sure that the team, that everyone on the team, really understands the macro vision. This is where we're going. This is what we're doing. This is why what you're working on matters. This is how it affects customers. This is how much how it affects the bottom line, the top line, the everything else. Uh, this is how um, our vision can get messed up if this thing doesn't get done the right way so that everyone understands the importance of what they're doing and the way i kind of view it is that everybody at some level right uh, i don't like to think of it too hierarchical but everyone has a focus area you know ceo your kind of your focus area is everything else but uh you do need to have ceo sometimes feels like chief everything officer okay. but you got to get from chief everything officer to chief executive officer at some point during that evolution so i'm trying to do that by basically letting everybody um and I don't mean this can easily be taken the wrong way, but um, ideally what you should do is make it so that your team, every single person for their area of focus is sort of thinking like a CEO of that space, right? So even if your job is just the, even if you're just a cleaner, right? Think like, this is what the long-term goal of the company is. This is why it matters that I clean well. And so I'm going to clean uh, to make that goal happen. And if everyone has goal alignment and they're thinking like the CEO of cleaning, right? And it's a stupid example, but just, you know, bear with me, then um, they'll do uh, a better job, you know, than you would think to. And what I, the most fulfilling times for me are when are the, and they're increasing, they're, they're happening more often than they used to, you know, where I look at someone's work and think, wow, they thought of things I never would have thought to do versus, what you often feel as a founder in an early stage company is, oh man, I need to do it if I want it to get done right, right? If it, you want it done right, do it yourself. That whole thing is really hard to get past. And at the beginning of your company, if the vision is not very clearly communicated, if you don't have a good team, that's very true. But as you start to make improvements in your team and in your structure and in the clarity of your vision, it starts to feel the opposite. You're like, well, thank God they're doing it because I would mess it up. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? That's a good point and kind of, um, brings us to focus uh, as with an enterprise background and seems that's where you started the company uh, usually it is much easier to focus than starting through you know small business or mid-sized business where where you can that uh, dilutes your focus uh, very easily with across multiple verticals multiple cheapest uh, and some some of them coming inbound not even going outbound so it's it's very easy to become a mess at the same time you have feedback much quicker than in the enterprise um, space um, so what were the main questions and the main bottlenecks that you had with in terms of finding out a specific vertical a specific pain point a specific use case across vertical that helped you to focus the company and the team well we went through uh... I mean, there are, I guess, two types of companies, really. This isn't a unique thing. There are companies that build a product out and then search for a market, um, which I think are the ones that have the hardest time, right? This, this is the, the biggest problem. Um, and then there are companies that um, they build a product that fulfills needs in a market, but then they often find that needs are shared throughout a wider community, right? So it, then it becomes a matter of what opportunity do I focus on? 
uh, and that's very challenging and can be deadly if it's not handled correctly, but it also can be a great a way to expand greatly if you do it wisely, right? Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, we were kind of in the latter. You know, like I, like I said, I didn't we didn't start this company on a whim thinking, wouldn't it be cool if it was really, we set this huge problem. Uh, the, the problem is what motivated me to start the company to, be, to begin with. And as we built the company and as we unveiled more and more of the product features, we discovered more and more and more and more problems in multiple industries because of the lack of 3D technology or 3D understanding, as I should say, right? So uh, we found way too many applications for our own good. Uh, and I mean, I would say in the first month after the product was kind of announced to the public, we had were approached by 20 completely separate ideas about how to use it, big opportunities. And some of them seem, you know, the numbers are astounding and, and everyone's like, oh, you'd be an idiot if you didn't do this, or you'd be an idiot if you didn't do this. And you feel like, well, no matter what I'm gonna do, someone gonna think I'm an idiot. But uh, eventually you have to figure out for yourself what makes the most sense. And what we ended up doing, this was an evolution. Uh, we did not just make the perfect call at the beginning. What we ended up doing was adapting. We had our initially our focus was purely exclusively on IP protection, intellectual property protection, mm-hmm. and how to monetize that. Um, that went to plagiarism prevention in universities because we were pushed so heavily for that. And then we uh, moved that on to ins- uh, 3D inspection automation for you know cell towers and, and large in- industri- large industry, right? Um, and then it was quality control for a bit. And then you know this is all within a few months of each other, right? Really, really fast changes. Yeah. Um, our product team absolutely hated me for a while because whenever I'd walk in, they'd be like, okay, well, everything I did this month is, I'm guessing, getting scrapped, right? Because right. Uh, so, um, you would find something else and there, eventually you would see, oh, wait, maybe this actually makes more sense. And then we started, you know, we also had this engineering focus, right, where it's for useful for people who are uh, in the process of designing the product to begin with, people who, um, and what we found was that there's a product life cycle you know, it starts from the idea, the design, the uh, manufacturing of the part, and then the adoption of the market, wear and tear, et cetera, right? Uh, all the way back to, well, that wasn't that great. Let's build another one, right? So there's a circle that goes in. Um, and we found that it made the most sense to start at the beginning of that circle. And now we're about halfway through that. Um, there are some Q, there are some inspection things you can do with FISNA and stuff. But as far as our actual go-to-market focus, we're kind of about halfway through that, kind of through the um, the idea, design, finding that part later, manufacturing the part, finding it, uh, supply and distribution, right? Um, right? And then there's some stuff later on we can do with inspection, quality control, and all that. Uh, there are some things that don't fit into there at all, like um, healthcare, you know, being able to detect, there's a, in theory, we'll be able to, uh, our technology should allow us to find tumors at a much earlier stage than is currently possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not according to me because I don't know anything about that technology, but I, we've let people play with it and a few different health organizations that approached us. And my whole mentality with them has been, hey, have at it. If, if it's going to save someone's life, just go for it. You know, But we'll figure out a licensing deal, but it's too complicated for us to try to go that way and this way, et cetera. So for us, um, I guess my advice, uh, my tip would be one, once you discover your your range of product applications, right? Um, try to map them out and figure out, okay, if I have, if all things look more or less equal, or there are a lot of unknowns, or it's just, you know, uh, it's hard to, to put all, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket either, because I also feel like if we had not adapted, 
and a lot of our uh, advisors um, and a lot of people in general at the time told us not to change focus, not to get distracted, to stick with the plan. But looking back now, if we had done that, we would have absolutely failed because there was information we didn't know about some of those markets and there were reasons why we needed to kind of dabble uh, and kind of figure or find our way. Um, so this, I wouldn't say that you have to immediately pick the, the direction you're headed in. You need to kind of figure out what direction makes the most sense. And if you have a new product that hasn't come out before, I mean, if you have a coffee shop or something very traditional, it might not be this hard, but if what we were doing was something that was very, very unusual, we couldn't really even think of who's a real competitor for us. So, you know, there's some that kind of are for certain areas, but then not really one-to-one. -one. So it was really hard for us to figure out, you know, uh, what, what areas of application make the most sense. Once you figure out what that map looks like of all your areas of application, start where it makes the most sense and where you can scale, scale the fastest, uh, knowing that when you add on that next piece of uh, either that next application or that next market, they should be symbiotic, right? So um, our thought was, hey, if we start in the engineering and supply chain side with FISNA, and, um, and then later on we get used for uh, quality control, well, that's pretty symbiotic because the same companies very often are designing and making these parts. Right. So, and then that way, what that means is if some, uh, if one day we do have two sales forces going out and selling both, if somebody goes out and sells the quality control side, it'll be easy for us to get the engineering side and maybe vice versa. So it's, it's a symbiotic relationship. It's a symbiotic approach. Whereas, um, even though I would, like I said, on a personal level, I would love to see the healthcare side work out because I think for humanitarian reasons, I'm sure there's good money in it too, but I would love it if it would help uh, save lives for sure. But if we were to make that our focus, first of all, I don't think we'd make it because we don't know how that industry works um, on our own. And, um, and secondly, if we were successful there, it would be a pretty big uh, leap to go from that into the industrial field or vice versa, right? It's, it's just it's too different. Got it. This, this is a very good point in terms of staying adaptable. Um, and I believe there is, as you, as you were saying, there is always a degree of product market fit even when you are scaling. So if you need to open a new GU, um, for instance, or if you need to open new segments inside a, a customer, uh, even a new uh, use case, as you were saying, but at a certain point when we are scaling up, it's, it's all about subtraction and kind of doubling down on what is working. Uh, that's why, right. why I like to say kind of the strategy, the strategy exercise, or the strategic exercise, it's all about subtraction. So what can we kill in order to scale uh, faster? Right? You have to think of it like a scientist, you know, uh, it, there's no right or wrong. You have a theory, you have a hypothesis, you go into the lab to test it. Some people make a mistake by only testing one thing. They test, if I mix this with that, does that give me this thing? Right. And they're stubborn about it and they won't change anything. They say, no, this is the hypothesis. This is all I'm going to test. That's just this one product market fit. I'm just being laser focused. Some people mistake that for clarity of vision. Um, if a second scientist walks into the room with a similar idea and says and tests something and it doesn't work out correctly, but they learn something from it and they say, maybe if I mix these things differently, it would give me the result I wanted. If I did this a little bit differently and they test four five, six things, whatever, but they do it quickly and they learn quickly. They're not spending forever on each one. They're learning and they're adapting immediately with every little exercise. Uh, and that's the right way to start. Now you're right though. Once you get, once you start getting data back, 
right? If you have, if I have 20 beakers, uh, it probably wouldn't be that many, hopefully, <laughs> but if I have a few beakers out there uh, and I'm testing them for a different result, whatever one gives me the best result is the one I'm going to work from. I'm not going to work from all three of them just because I have all three, right? You need to say, uh, there's gotta be an ROI. So you're totally right, but there's a, that's a, there's a pr progression you have to start with. Make sure that you're testing enough logically, not too much, but enough stuff that you can keep your eye on which is the best approach at the very beginning of your company. And once you start to get that feedback, um, be ready to invest in that. But then I would say, you know, just like a scientist would or a geneticist or who, if you were growing plants or something, take the best results from every new thing and use that as a starting point. You know, that's kind of how we um, modified corn to be so big, right? <laughs> we always took the largest corn stalks, you know, uh, it should be like that in the company. Always, uh, you know, double down on what works, but then keep learning about what might work even better in a controlled environment without going crazy. Got it. In terms of focus, uh, for the ones who are listening to the, the, the show, uh, we have guests uh, from all over the world, uh, but giving some context, you are based in Cincinnati, uh, Ohio. How was geographical expansion? Uh, I mentioned that your focus is still in, in the US. Uh, did you decide to go East Coast, West Coast? So what was your geographical thesis uh, or hypothesis as well? <laughs> so. Uh, there's a, there's an old adage in business that goes that you know the well you've heard the real estate one location 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 but then well, when it comes to business the the equivalent adage is always be close to your customer right when it comes to location always be close oh. to your customer right. literally physically close and that still matters today it really does especially in B2B right B2C maybe you can get away with it because it's all advertisement but when it's B2B you have to shake some hands. Uh, and there is just an element of that and technology is not past that yet. So, um, when it comes to the location and that was the first thing we looked for. Now there's a reason that all these companies went to Silicon Valley, though. it's not because they, you know, were stupid or anything because the, most of their customers are not in Silicon Valley. Most of them are very far away from Silicon Valley. The majority of the economies in the East, not the West. Right. But the reason that we chose the Midwest is because since we're industrial focused, right. The Midwest is the heartland for that. Uh, we have offices in Cincinnati and Columbus, Ohio. Um, that's, we're very much in the middle of that Rust Belt kind of area. There's a lot of innovation going on here. It's a good state to be in. It's, uh, we're within easy driving distance of 60% of the economy in the US and the vast majority of our, of our industry. Um, so when it, well, the reason why Silicon Valley and the East Coast didn't make sense for us now is just because of what we're focused on uh, and the year that we're in, right? Silicon Valley got its start because it will Silicon, you, you could be close to the servers and the chips and everything. You could see how people did their data centers. Now there's the clouds. That's kind of not really an argument anymore. Not for us. It's not as compelling as this. Access to capital would be compelling. So for a while, we did think we'd have to move out there. But as we started finding capital in the Midwest, we thought, why would we go move over there if we have access to enough capital to move here and we're close to the customers? We have a strategic advantage if we did have a really close competitor pop up, you know, in Silicon Valley, even if they were better better funded. They need more money just to stay alive because it's expensive out there. And, and then they also don't have that face-to-face -face interaction with the customer. So that was our logic behind that. We do have um, customers and connections, um, leads and partnerships uh, outside the U.S. and very far away from the Midwest. But, um, but 
primarily it is in this area. Um, at least in the beginning, it was almost exclusively in this area, just because it was easier to go and literally go to the customer's place and say, what do you think? Let's sit down, set a focus group. And, and there is value to that. That's a very good point. Uh, location, location, always be close to your mm -hmm. customers. Sometimes we forget this, that just having a random coffee or uh, shaking hands and seeing each other. Uh, Absolutely. You're going to stand yes. down, uh, right? People you stand out to them psychologically much more deeply and much more um, emphatically than if you were to just send them an email or, you know, if we were meeting per uh, person to person, I would be more likely to recognize you and, you know, in the future, or, and I'm, I'm more likely to recognize you now that I've seen your face versus if you just talked on the Absolutely. phone, Absolutely. right? So there is something to it. Absolutely. And, and we all have those stories that we were not thinking about the clients and then we meet each other at the coffee shop and we have a random yeah. conversation. We say, why don't we have a coffee uh, next week or tomorrow uh, to right. discuss a bit more about this? And uh, we were not expecting nothing to happen. It's just because of the proximity, uh, it, it really happens. Awesome. And in terms of execution, of course, your role as, as a CEO in, in the beginning of the company, as you were sharing, was much more uh, execution oriented. Nowadays, it is much more about inspiring execution and that your team is aligned with, with the vision and it's, that the, the vision is clear for everyone that is working in the company so they can make decisions and they can learn as quickly as possible and move the, the company into the right direction. So what are the rhythms that are the most important for you to inspire that execution and to inspire that or, or to assure that clarity that you were talking about? But you said most important rhythms. You mean like for yeah, day? Yeah, so weeklies, dailies, monthly. Uh, oh, okay, gotcha. One-on-ones. So, what are those special rhythms for you? Kind of for some of some people, is kind of going through the main opportunities every single week and understanding how we can move them forward, or just having a random conversation with a with a customer every single week to understand uh, if they are enjoying the product or not, what we can learn. So. What is important for you? Communication is extremely important, and uh, and it's something that we're working on at the company currently. In, a, in the past few weeks, we've made a lot of progress in that field, actually. Uh, what starts to happen, and it's even when you know that it's happening, you try to avoid it, it's amazing how much you have to interfere directly with this, with, with, you know, this natural evolution, if you don't intervene, of people kind of becoming too segmented. And what we were finding uh, a few months ago was that our you know, the, the developers and the salespeople were on different pages about different things. Uh, you know, we would, I would try to communicate things kind of clearly, but the, but it would go and end up, someone would convey the message to somebody else and that kind of became like a telephone game and, and, and things weren't as clear to certain people. Um, and I also don't think that they saw that I was doing as good of a job of communicating the big vision. You know, we started the company, we used to have these uh, kind of like scrum meetings, you know, we would just, at the beginning of the day or at least once a week, we would all get together and we would all talk. And what I found was that because some of the developers, you know, I think this is true for many companies, they're a little bit more introverted, uh, they weren't really speaking up as much. And I thought maybe I'm missing out on a lot because I'm not feeling comfortable sharing their thoughts or whatever. So uh, I, I decided to switch over to a system that was uh, much more reliant on one-to-ones than on you know a general large company meetings. And I thought that might be at least for the interim, more scalable. Um, obviously, at some point, you can't do one-to-ones anymore if, you, if we were to get a million employees. But you know, for the foreseeable future, I thought we could do that. What I found from that was that the one-to-ones, I intentionally left them very unstructured because I wanted to be a 
a casual kind of you know calm conversation. Uh, I would ask a few certain a few pro, uh, pro, uh, probing questions, but I wanted them to really just kind of start to talk and you know feel more comfortable and say things. And when I learned is that sometimes I think that I underestimated how people view that as uh, I'm sorry did I lose you are you still there you were frozen yes, for a second uh, we, yeah okay we, we lost you for for a while if, if you could just repeat the the last segment please sure so uh, I was talking about one-to-ones right yep Correct. Good. Let's make sure. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Yeah. So the, we, uh, what I found from the one-to-ones is that some of the people, um, I think, were a little more intimidating by that format than I had expected. I thought that they would be more relaxed being one-on-one, -on -one, but I didn't really think about the dynamic of employee boss so much as one person versus another. And I think that, yeah. uh, and I, I try really hard to not have that culture be there, right? That's what I, I don't want people to think of me as a boss. I just want them to think of me as a person with a different role who's in charge of, you know, this stuff. But I, I want, because I want that communication to stay open, but some people just have that ingrained in them. So I, I realized then that there was probably a cultural issue that people felt even one-on-one, -on -one, not apprehensive. They would talk to me, but I felt like they weren't ever telling me everything that they probably yes. were thinking. So recently what we started to do was to go back to the company-wide meetings, but doing them a little bit differently where they're more like, exercises where you give people instead of just saying speak up in front of the whole group or say nothing right it's more like hey uh, let's all write down something on a post-it note let's talk through this together you know one person at a time where they start to kind of learn that that um, that process and feel more comfortable doing that um, and as we scale that's something we'd like to make sure that we're doing in every team at least you know and then try to keep it company-wide as much as possible so that's the route we're currently taking is trying to keep it really hands-on very engaging um, some uh, and, and make sure that there's an, a method and a process so that those meetings where even if you are shy or introverted, uh, you'll still have a way to get your thoughts out. Got it. Awesome. And before we come to the end of the show and, and the last question of the show, I, I still want to ask you uh, one of those growth questions about the triple, twice, double, three times. So there's this, this rule uh, that talks about some of the most successful um, SaaS businesses in the world who are able to triple two times from 2 million to 6 million ARR and 18 million ARR, and then double three times from 18 to 36, 36 to 72, and 72 to 144, which would get five years to go from 2 million to 100 million ARR. If we add another two years of mistakes, another three years of product market fit, so we'd get there in a decade. Uh, that was a, a, a huge uh, success. Do you think that is kind of realistic to aspire to double and triple every single year? It is part of the game, or do you have a slightly different opinion? It's very realistic. I actually don't think uh, one word that I really hate is unrealistic. Uh, <laughs> re reality is, uh, and I, I think it's a very fundamental human thing. You know, we look at our peers for uh, a gauge of what's realistic and what's doable and what's not, and uh, and that's unfortunate because what's realistic for person A might be unrealistic for person B, and what right. person C can do might be unrealistic for person A. But we've kind of all agreed on this the sort of like law of averages where, okay, well, if, well, you know, every average person can do this stuff. 
So it's unrealistic to do more, but everyone has some, a different level of what's realistic. And I think that's true not only for individuals and leaders especially, but it's very much true for the companies that they're running, the markets that they're in. And uh, at the end of the day, there's no such thing as unrealistic or impossible because uh, it would be extremely presumptuous for me to tell a human being or a company what is realistic or unrealistic for them to do because I don't know every single thing that's going on inside their head. I don't know what they're made out of. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, I don't know if the, if the economy is going to fundamentally change, if their company is going to change. So I don't believe in realistic versus unrealistic. It is realistic to do it uh, and it can be done. But there are some approaches that will not get you there and some approaches that will. And so it's not so much, I don't believe in, I know people like talking about odds all the time, especially when you're around VCs. They say, oh, only one in so many companies make it to this. I'm like, so, yeah, whatever. That doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, you're going, it's a, it's a combination of, just like your combination of nature and nurture, you know, your, your DNA and what you've experienced in life, your company's kind of like that. It's some people that you have in there and what they're capable of. And then the experiences that you go through as a company, no one can predict those. Uh, the best you can do is work on the, the team. You're, you're, I mean, unlike in life, you actually can work on the nature a bit. You can hire the right people. And then you can seek out opportunities that, that uh, define the nurture part, the experience that you go through, at least in large part, right? So the, it's not that you have a one in X chance of getting funded or getting to a certain revenue size. You either absolutely will or you absolutely won't. Um, but we just don't know because it's, it's where the past of that future. So we don't know what will happen, but uh, you have the ability to do. Um, there's always one or set of actions, I think, that I'm, I always felt like the most powerful superpower to ever have would be an infinite knowledge. Because if you had infinite knowledge, you would have every other superpower because you would know how to get it, right? How to obtain it. Uh, you, you would achieve everything you ever wanted to because you would know how to achieve it. And there might be some things you don't want to know, but you would know everything so you would be able to achieve anything. So, you know, so I, we don't know everything, so we don't know what's possible. But if you had all the knowledge in the world, you would know that there is a set of actions you can take from any situation you're in today to any outcome that you want. I firmly believe that. It's just a matter of, can you figure out that puzzle? Some puzzles are easier than others, but there's a way for everyone, I think. Love it, that, that one. Uh, glad that I asked it. <laughs> so, and, and we come, uh, we came to the end of the show. So uh, if you would have the opportunity to meet yourself uh, at the beginning of uh, FISNA, what advice would you offer to your younger self? It's a great question. There's a lot of advice <laughs> I would give myself. And at the same time, there's not, because at the same time, I feel like some lessons can't be learned through advice, right? So I, th there are some t tips and tricks I would teach myself about being more organized. And I would definitely talk about, you know, certain types of planning better. I would tell myself what the market was going to look like in two years and all that. But in reality, you know, I, I think the better answer to your question that might be more useful for viewers and it's probably more of a useful statement is that uh, sometimes I tell people if I could go back and change the past, for the most part, I wouldn't. Because every time that you face adversity, every time that you totally mess up on something, you learn much more than just that one failure, right? You learned that there's a subjective or subconscious learning that's going on about all these different things that you did and what you felt like when you were going through that process and what parts of your 
what, what thoughts you ignored, what feelings you ignored, you know, what feelings you chased versus thoughts or whatever. And it, you learn more than just, oh, this set of actions doesn't work. It's more about how you went about making that just that, that process and uh, you become stronger by by going through these things. So I don't necessarily think that taking mistakes and failures away from people is doing them any service because I think that if I hadn't gone through that, if I did have magically knowledge from the future about one or two things that was going to happen and I was able to plan better and organize better than today when I face yeah, inevitably, I'll face more challenges in the future, right? I'm not, I wouldn't be as well prepared for those as I am now if I didn't have to go through that in the past. Very good point, uh, Paul. It was really a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. And to our community, uh, we keep here bringing the best of the best, so it can be a little bit easier to scale from 2 million to 100 million uh, AR. So thanks for joining and see you in the next episode. Oh, 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 oh,